Robots Radio presents... Welcome to the Outer World Show, sharing the latest news, interesting tips, and hidden lore about the Outer Worlds. I'm your board-approved host, Sebastian Nazaro, and I hope you come locked and loaded, spacers, because today we're exploring the once company town, now abandoned to the wilds, Cascadia. So let's blast off and dive right into it. Hey there, Spacers. Welcome back to another episode of the Outer World Show. I am so happy to have you here because today we're exploring a location that people might not know much about. I know in my playthrough, I didn't even go to this location until after I'd beaten the game and reloaded a prior save. The game's been out for about 10 days now, and I haven't seen too, too much about the history and the lore or any details about this town. So I grabbed my handgun, I grabbed my map, grabbed a couple of companion buddies, and I decided to go and check it out. Of course, we're talking about Cascadia, the abandoned town and the far edges of Monarch. Now, many of you who kind of rushed through the game or played a hurried playthrough might have actually gone to Cascadia pretty early on. You get the option to land in Cascadia instead of going through the entire fetch quest of trying to get the Nova Key to Stellar Bay. If you did that, if you made that choice to go right to Cascadia and get to Monarch early, more on you. I mean, I didn't feel like I was prepared at all to go there, but I'm sure some of our more adventurous spacers did. But for any of those of you who didn't go to Cascadia either right away or at all like me, let me give you a few details before we get into the backstory of the city. So Cascadia was run by Rizzos, you know, the wah, 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 Rizzos, you know, the, the company. Cascadia was just one of their towns, one of their settlements that they owned, Um, but it was a fairly populous one by the looks of it, and it was a fairly uh, hardened town due to the wilds of Monarch. This is the Terra One days. This is before it was Monarch. It was a thriving city that had offices, a plant, a bottling plant for the Purpleberry Punch that everybody loves, and even a secret lab. Where a woman by the name of Eva Chartrand was performing secret research. Now, we're not even going to touch that. We're not even going to get into Dr. Chartrand and her research because that is the entire quest line of uh, Sublight Salvage. So, I'm going to save that and we'll do that at a later time. But just know that the secret lab is there. Now, the town is divided into two portions across this uh, valley where a bridge goes across. The north side and the south side. When you arrive there in the game... You arrive on the landing pad in the north side, and everything's kind of shut down because of certain events that we'll get to in Cascadia's history. But the bridge is locked down. You have to find your way into the south side by going around a certain way. And both sides are overrun by raptodons, manosaurs, and on the south side, there are even marauders who are trying to loot the town. Now, there aren't many people there who are living in Cascadia, but there were people at one time, and it was a thriving community. So I went through the terminals, I went through all the back history, we're going to go from the very beginning of what we know about Cascadia all the way up until the present day, actually, in the game. So, we're talking about Terror 1, 
when the board was still trying to colonize what will be Monarch, but at that time was called Terra One. And Rizzo's owned Cascadia. They owned the city. And it ran pretty much like any other company town you see, much like Edgewater with Spacer's Choice. The company was running just as we see all the other companies running, controlling everybody's daily lives, not giving much as far as breaks or workers' rights. Uh, we do find out a few interesting facts. Uh, Zora Blackwood, you know, the Iconoclast leader or one of the leaders of the Iconoclast, was a Rizzo's employee. And she even got Employee of the Month recognition. And you'd know this if you get to the point where you can negotiate and broker a peace between the Iconoclasts and MSI. That's a part of that quest line is going to find her Employee of the Month recognition. You'll also find the performance evaluation of another employee named Cecil McClure. Cecil's story gives a little more insight into what life was like before Monarch took Cascadia back. You can see Cecil's performance review as well, and he is recommended not to exceed store manager because of his understanding of all of the products and his love for the Rizzo's brand. Good work, Cecil. You're, you're a stellar employee, and uh, you get rewarded by staying in your place. Very, uh, very OSI of you. Now, running with Cecil, following Cecil's story, on April 17th of 2342, Cecil is reprimanded for using unapproved metaphors when speaking to the customers. He's saying things like, that's a bunch of like, wrapped it on crap, non-board approved metaphors. So Cecil's already in hot water. And at some point in the next few months, he is reprimanded for consumption of non-approved lunch materials, failure to volunteer for voluntary overtime, as weird as that sounds, and sale of restricted goods. Now, he contests these. He says, that's not my fault that I am being written up for these violations. He says that he's allergic to the approved lunch materials of Purpleberry Lunch, and it's a miracle that he hasn't died from it yet, being exposed to it all the time. He's highly allergic. He also says that he was assigned overtime, so he can't volunteer for overtime because he's already been assigned to it. But he does admit to selling restricted goods to a man who smells terrible. He's sold some soap, and he promises he won't do it again. So life is just great for Cecil at this point. Uh, and this actually, the reason I'm going through this is that actually ties in again to the sublight quest line because Cecil is a member of the secret lab that picks up and goes off to another location later on in the game. Again, we'll get that to that in a later episode, but it's funny to see that Cecil had this backstory, this life before becoming involved with the secret lab and moving on to bigger and better things. He was just another average employee getting written up for not eating his purple berry lunch. It's, it's pretty interesting to see these details in there. In these emails, you can also see some of the danger increasing. In September of 2342, one of the managers named Violet, she emails uh, an executive named Pauline saying that a lot of employees have submitted forms R441, which is perceived danger to human resources. Basically, danger to their own lives. They're the human resources. And they're submitting these forms because there have been a ton of Raptodon sightings around the town. And Violet claims that the employees are getting restless. Now, Rizzo's had failed repeatedly to respond to the request for safety equipment. And now the people are getting nervous. So you could see the danger is building already, which will eventually lead to the hazard clause and the companies leaving uh, Terra 1 for Terra 2. But this is still before that, and things go on as usual. A couple weeks later, Zora, who's working as a regular employee, remember, not the leader of the Iconoclast just yet, she begs Violet to allow Cecil to sell soap again, because the smelly guy is smelling worse than corpses. So, 
they uh, there's a little resentment among the employees. They know that there are rules, but they don't want to follow them. It seems like the tension's building a little bit due to the hazards, and it's going to get to a point where it's not going to be able to be contained anymore. So things go on, business as usual, danger's growing. And then on January 12th, 2343, the hazard clause is issued. But only the head of the town gets it, a person named Sumner Ziegler. And Ziegler emails Pauline, one of the executives as we saw, and a guy named Ted. So these three, it's, it's Ziegler, Pauline, and Ted. They're the heads of the town at this point, And they're going to form this little group that we're going to follow from now on. Now, the hazard clause is issued to Ziegler. Ziegler shares it with Ted and Pauline. And Ziegler claims that they'll need to maintain exports until evacuation happens. That means they have to keep producing even though they know that the board's abandoning the planet. Now, this group, we'll call them management. Now, management decides in these emails not to tell the workers of the hazard clause or the evac. They just want business to continue as usual until the literal day that the evac happens. Now, Ted emails back and wonders, should they start scuttling research for exports? Should they be exporting more and boosting their quotas at this point? And Ziegler says no. They say that they'll hit their quotas, the minimum that they need to do, and that Project Taro is their number one priority. Now, this is the first time we're hearing of Project Taro, and there aren't many details on what it actually was. But from what I can gather... Management was running a project to investigate terror rays, the big kind of pterodactyl enemies, and to see what the benefits they can gain from them, uh, whether it's um, sustainability, whether it's survivability, any sort of benefits that they can get from terror rays, they wanted to kind of use in the town. From what I gathered, like I said, the details are pretty hazy there. What you do need to know is that there was a project Taro. And management said that they have to keep it going even though evac is coming and that it is a number one priority. It is the top of the list for management right now within Cascadia. So few months pass. Exports are still going out. Project Terror is still going. Management knows that they're going to be evacuating at some point, but they don't know when. And this is goes on and on until March 7th where Rizzo's headquarters emails Ziegler and saying that the shuttles scheduled for Cascadia are now being rerouted somewhere else. They're being rerouted to more profitable plants. And it was all based on export volume. So if Ziegler had just listened to Ted, and they increased their quotas or increased their exports to go above the bare minimum, rather than focusing on Project Terra, Rizzo's HQ might have found a way to send a bunch of shuttles to get them off the planet quicker because everything's measured by profitability. Obviously, it's the outer worlds. It's the Halcyon colony. Now, this same email from Rizzo's HQ to Ziegler says that Cascadia is only getting one shuttle. And if they have more people, then they have to prioritize who's the most important. And any extra loading, if they load any extra people onto the shuttle, will be met with forceful intervention. So Ziegler sees this and is really annoyed, really frustrated. They email back to HQ and ask about Project Taro. They say, Project Taro should make us more important. Like, we're doing great research here, so we should get more than one shuttle. HQ says that research projects are not taken into consideration when determining the profitability of the settlements. So again, if Ziegler had just listened to Ted, they could have gotten a couple of shuttles, they could have gotten off of there quicker, and they could have avoided the mess that you're about to hear about. <laughs> 
Sumner takes these emails, these HQ emails, and forwards them to Ted and Pauline. So now all of management knows that there's only one shuttle coming for everybody within Cascadia. And Ziegler says, well, Project Terror needs to come. And that's going to take two-thirds of the space in the shuttle between the resources, the Terros themselves, and the people working on it. All of them get full priority. All of them get on the shuttle first, and that's two-thirds of the shuttle space. There's not much room for everybody else. So Ziegler, after saying that they should create a subcommittee to draft a decision-making plan to figure out who should can come, uh, turns to Ted and Pauline for ideas. And Ted says, let's just take the tarot team. Uh, we'll go, the tar- management and the tarot team, and we'll have a little extra legroom in the shuttle. And as horrible as that is, Pauline just says, seconded. And what should we tell the workers? <laughs> Which is just mind-blowing that the management team is just like, yeah, we'll bring Project Terra. We'll, well, we have room, but we'll just take them. And like once we get to Terra 2, we'll send another shuttle, maybe, if we think of it. We'll just leave everybody else here to the wilds of Monarch abandoned to their own devices. So Ziegler hears all this and makes a plan to tell the workers that they're going to be evacuating, but don't tell them that there's only one shuttle coming. The main goal is to get everybody out peacefully, so no incidents, no riots, no strikes. And they'll send another shuttle once they get to Terra 2. Keep everybody working. Keep the exports going. Tell them there's an evac, but everybody's going to eventually go, right? Don't worry about it. Eventually, they tell the workers that the evac is ordered and they're keeping the Terros. The Terros are coming with them. And about two months later, on April 28th, 2343, they hold a town meeting for Cascadia. And... It starts off very corporate, like, sanitized language. Colleen wants to assure everybody that they have jobs on Terra 2. Top management wants the Terra project to continue. The management are lying through their teeth. And everybody in the town are kind of, like, looking around and are very skeptical that this is actually going to work out. So Cecil pipes up and he's like, how the hell are we supposed to transport Terros? It's going to be crazy. And Ted just assures him, oh, no, there will be hunters there. Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, some other people bring up the point about the raptodons. I mean, there have been raptodon sightings for over six months now in this town. And the tarot and all the activity will just attract them. So what are they going to do about that? And, of course, management doesn't have a good answer for that. And then the big question is how many shuttles are coming? So Zora asks that. She goes, how many shuttles are coming? I mean, one won't be enough for just Terros and everybody else. She does the math really quick and like says, this doesn't add up. And management is like, oh, they'll, they'll probably send more. Don't worry. There'll be more shuttles. They said at least one. So don't worry about it. So the town is up in arms a little bit, but there's nothing really they can do except hope that management has it figured out and they'll all get out. And of course, that's not what happens because management sucks, as we can see. So during the evacuation... One shuttle comes. As we know, only one shuttle is planned. And while transporting the tarot cages, a few of them broke open. And the tarot's got everywhere, scratching people, attacking people, just going kind of crazy. And then all of this commotion obviously attracted the raptodons, who broke through the city walls and attacked the tarot's and the people. Now, it's a huge commotion. People are running, screaming everywhere. People are jumping on the shuttle. And management gives the order, take off. Get us out of here. Get the shuttle out of here right now. With just the tarot team and management on there, leaving the rest of the town to fend off raps and tarots at the same time. 
It's insane. You think that the board and these companies are bad and then you read deeper into what happens in places like Cascadia and those beliefs are just reinforced or it's even worse than you imagined. They sold everyone in the town out who wasted away their entire lives working for that company. They just threw them out like trash. Those who did remain and those who survived the raps made whatever homes they could, but the Raptodons were nesting. Corporate isn't returning their calls. And they had to do something. So a team led by Zora with Cecil, they locked off the north side of town and moved to the south side. That way, at least those monsters that are in the north side of town can't get to them in the south side. And eventually, they, the, everybody who survived kind of moved on. They had to abandon the city because the wilds took it back. There was no corporate to back them up, no supplies. Zora went on to join the iconoclasts and Cecil went on to that secret lab and to do that project. Now, there are a few other details of this part of the story. At some point, people were turning into zombies and frothing at the mouth. There were references to that. And Zora was warning that these people are monsters now. And I didn't really understand that part. I think I need to go back and do more research. Uh, She writes to Cecil at one point that these were once people, but she's not sure what they are anymore. And she takes a keypad from her office and puts it on the south gate to the bridge and then sends Cecil the password. I'm not sure what's happening there at all. So if if somebody has an idea out there or somebody knows what happened, found some sort of clue or hint, uh, send it in. Let me know on Twitter. Let me know at theouterworldshow at gmail.com. I would love to hear it. And we'll update everybody on the next episode. I'm sorry I couldn't find more on that, but there are some really strange terminal entries between Zora and Cecil from this time after that I just, I'm not too sure what they're referring to. All right, and there's one last story from Cascadia, and that's the story of Howard, Margaret, and Herbert. Now, Howard and Margaret were two of Rizzo's employees who, during the Raptodon attack during evacuation, they both become injured. Margaret is knocked into a coma, it seems like. And Howard gets a huge, horrible bite or scratch by a raptodon on his leg. They're also with their child, Herbert. Or I think he's both of their child. Uh, He's at least Margaret's kid. I don't know if he's Howard's. And to escape the, the chaos, they end up going underneath the bridge to kind of a power station that's located underneath the bridge between the north and south side of town and living there, essentially. What you can read is that Howard knows that he doesn't have much time left. The wound on his leg will not stop bleeding. It might be infected. And he knows Margaret's unconscious, but he keeps writing to her as though she might wake up. And he really hopes that she wakes up before he dies, before he passes away, so she can take care of Herbert, the kid. It's really sad stuff. Uh, Howard takes some trips up of on top of the bridge and kind of scopes out what's happening and sees that Zora and Cecil, they're like doing their thing in the south part of town, but he doesn't engage them and doesn't let them know he's there because he has a huge stockpile of food underneath the bridge and he doesn't want them to know about it. He thinks they're much safer in the mechanical room rather than going up to live in the wilds with everybody else and distribute the food among all of them. He ends up intubating Margaret, which is not a good sign. So it like helps her breathe while she's in a coma, meaning she can't breathe on her own. Uh, and then he ends up building these auto mechanicals to take care of her after he dies. He is getting worse and worse by the day. Uh, one leg is completely useless. The veins on his other have turned a black, gross color. And he begs her in an email not to go to the surface if she awakens. 
He says, at this point, everyone's dead. So time is passing. He's getting worse. Everybody up there dies or moves on. And he's trying to put Margaret and Herbert in the best position possible for after he passes. And then Margaret ends up dying. And Howard removes the tubes, removes everything, and just cries and cries all night. And we switch to Herbert's point of view in the in the letters. So he's old enough to write and learn how to write, but not old enough to fully understand what's happening. Howard, in one of his last dying days, teaches Herbert how to use a scythe, which is called a candy cane. It's a unique item. And Herbert's really taken to all of the auto, the two auto mechanicals that are down there, as well as a cow that's down there, which is pretty funny. He calls one uh, White Hat, who has a chef hat on, and he likes White Hat. And as you can guess, eventually Howard dies. Herbert is still young, but he's he's knows that his father or father figure died and still lives there. Herbert just keeps living there in that mechanical room to the point where if you go there in the game, you will find Herbert there with the cow and the two auto mechanicals. And they aren't fully angry at you when you walk in. But I walked up, I tried to talk to him, and he turned and just like started attacking me. So I don't know if there's a way to talk to Herbert. If Again, if anybody knows, if you can talk to Herbert and like find out what happened, please like fill me in. Uh, I ended up killing everybody in that place because so, I was defending myself, I, I swear. <laughs> so I – and then learning all of this after the fact. So I, I just would love to know if there's a way to interact with him other than going in and just seeing his house. And that's about it. That's that's Cascadia. Those are the main stories. You got the story of the evac with Project Taro and all of the shady stuff that management was doing. You have kind of the performance and everyday life before that between Cecil and Zora and their performance reviews. And then you have Herbert, Howard, and Margaret and their story underneath the bridge. There's a lot of life here in this lifeless town that if you go digging a little bit, you can find and experience it was really awesome doing this research and learning about how much there was buried beneath the surface. Uh, and it makes me super excited about the rest of these places and to learn what the history is with all these other locations. Uh, so we'll move on. We'll keep moving through these locations and seeing what we can learn. Uh, but for now, that's, that's going to be it for Cascadia. All right. So that means time for a break. When we come back, we'll get to my playthrough again and we'll do the Spacer of the Week. I'm Sebastian Azaro, and I'm inviting you to the Hidden Pixels podcast, a show exploring those gaming stories you might have missed on your first playthrough. Whether it's a side character's dark past, or a small piece of information that changes the entire fictional universe, I'd like to share with story lovers and gamers alike. From Nintendo to Bethesda to your favorite indie games, we're looking at all different types of series to find these hidden stories. So join us every two weeks on the Hidden Pixels podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher. I can't wait to share these stories with you. Thanks. My playthrough. We last left Captain Rummy with both Pravardi and Vicar Max as my companions, and we were climbing aboard the Unreliable. Remember, I'm going to turn Phineas in at the first chance I get. I tried to in Edgewater, 
didn't work out, so we're going to Groundbreaker and finding the board. But first, aboard the Unreliable, I learned that there was a shrink ray from Hawthorne's log on the computer, and I also got that holographic shroud. So instead of going to Groundbreaker first, we ended up taking a detour to Phineas's lab to get that shrink ray. I grabbed it, and I was poking around on his communications terminal, and I found out that he's taking orders from someone else and saying that I'm just one of many Hope colonists that he's taken out of hibernation. So, I mean, just another reason to turn this jackass in. It just makes too much sense at this point. So he is a criminal, and I am turning him in. So we go to Groundbreaker. But before I exit the ship, Pavardi stops me, and it triggers her companion quest. Uh, which I'm going to do fully. I, I think Pavardi's awesome. I'm totally on board with doing that with her. I also saw Felix when I walked off the ship, found out that Udon had been hounding Hawthorne about Phineas's location and impounded our ship. And I'm like, I can solve that in two seconds. And then I persuaded my way into the security office. And there I looked up Vicar Max's contact. Remember, he was trying to find a contact that could read French or translate the book. And that contact ends up being in Fallbrook on Monarch. We won't get there for a while, so I put that one on the back burner. Now, the first really significant person I met in Groundbreaker was Gladys, the old lady who gives you a bunch of missions. But I didn't take those missions because I am a company man and I want to talk to Udon before I talk to anyone. So I went to go find Udon. But... I ended up finding something better. Martin, the Moon Man, the Spacer's Choice rep on Groundbreaker, is essentially everything that's amazing about this game. And then some. Like, Obsidian, you killed it. Like, amazing job. Because that interaction is like the highlight of the game. Martin, the Moon Man, go talk to him and holy, I just want to save him. I just want to like be his, be his pal. Help him out. He can wear the helmet. It's okay. (laughs) So I started going around Groundbreaker. The next place I went to is the clinic. I met Ellie, another companion, and decided to intervene. I donned the disguise of the medical personnel and ran back to meet with her friend, Jesse, who Ellie owed money to. And I told Jesse, I'm with the board, and I will call off all my guards if you let Ellie off the hook. Um, there was also some doctor that needed me to go to Scylla for a delivery, so I picked that one up too. And I am just racking up quests at this point. Just so many side quests once you get to Groundbreaker. And then finally, I get to Udon and ratted Phineas out with like my first breath to him. Like no hesitation at all. But he needs his seal to send the papers to the board and he pawned his seal to Gladys. So... I negotiated Jesse's freedom and, well, I negotiated Jesse into indentured servitude and then went and told Ellie and she joined the crew. So now I'm running with Ellie and Pavardi and I do that throughout the rest of the gameplay. She, They are my go-to party members. They are badass and we are one team. I love having them in my party. So we went back to Gladys who wanted 8,000 bits for the seal, which I wasn't even close to. So... I am going to be putting the main quest on a back burner as well until I can make that money up. I explored a little bit. I went to Sublight to see if they had any jobs, but they also needed me to get a Stellar Bay Nova Key, which Gladys owns. So there was only one thing left to do, and that was to go meet June Lee for Pavardi. Now, that interaction between those two was adorable, mostly because anything Pavardi does is adorable. Uh, but I just love it too much, so much, the interaction, just from the get-go. 
Uh, June Lee sent us to Back Bay, where I literally became best friends with McDermott uh, due to lying and intimidation. It was great. And I easily got the parts I needed, but I wanted Petey, the little drone, so bad. Uh, I just wanted to steal it, but I knew everyone would rip me to shreds as soon as I did. So I left it, but I got to go back. I got to go back and get Petey. I then fixed the radiators, which was a pretty boring quest, if you ask me, and then headed back to their unreliable to be off to find like 3,500 more bits somehow. But when I got there, Felix wanted to join my crew. So I interviewed him in that hilarious interview that you've probably seen and got him to join up. But unfortunately, Felix and I never saw eye to eye. I am a company man through and through, and Felix just really couldn't appreciate that. So he didn't end up being in my party very often. We went back aboard the Unreliable, but Pravardi told me she needed a drink on Groundbreaker. She's interested in Jun Lee. They've been talking. She needs a drink to talk about it. And I also realized that there's another science weapon there somewhere on Groundbreaker. So I went and searched and searched for the weapon and I checked the map and finally I figured out how to get it by platforming up into that corner of the room to the back hangar. Uh, and a few seconds later, I was holding the prismatic hammer, which was awesome. My second science weapon in like a couple hours. And then the final thing I did in this section of the game was I grabbed that drink with Pravardi and Ellie and I encouraged her to step up and ask you and Lee out. And she's nervous, but I have a feeling that everything will work out okay. <laughs> and that's where we'll end it this time for the playthrough. As for our spacer of the week, we're featuring Captain Lyra from at Lady Alenko on Twitter. Now, she has some amazing screenshots of the captain that she posted. So give her a follow. I'm going to retweet on our Twitter feed. Uh, they are amazing. Somehow she got the camera into third person view, which I think I've seen online that you can do, but I don't know how to do it. Uh, it's awesome. So I'll retweet it, check it out on Twitter, and go give Lady Alenko a follow. It's Lady underscore Alenko. You know, like Caden. <laughs> okay, moving on to show notes. We have two new iTunes reviews. Pharaoh Gurgis writes, A true gem, five stars. The time and attention put into this podcast hands down makes it a fantastic treat for those looking for more info on the outer worlds. Great information, great enthusiasm, and a ton of passion makes Sebastian a delight to listen to. You owe it to yourself to subscribe to this great show. Well, thanks, Pharaoh. I really appreciate that. I am trying to dig deeper to find the stories behind these topics in the game, like you heard today about Cascadia. So that just means a lot to me. Thank you. And Big Tap One writes, Great jump off for the Outer Worlds. Five stars. I was interested in the Outer Worlds, but wasn't sold enough to dust off my Xbox. I decided to look for some more information on the game and found the Outer Worlds show, and I was sucked in and downloaded the game before I finished the second episode. The podcast is a great way to get your feet wet and understand the background to the universe of the Outer Worlds, either before, after, or during your gameplay. Great show and keep up the amazing coverage. Tap. Thanks, Tap. I'm glad I can influence you into buying the game. <laughs> the more spacers, the merrier. That's what Auntie Cleo always says. And if you want to join in on these conversations, consider following us on Twitter, at Outer World Show, or join our Discord community, where we're talking about the game like every day. People are sharing things they found or different character builds. Our show guests are in there talking about the game. It's really been a blast since launch. 
Plus, we have a bunch of other activities associated with Hidden Pixels, my other show, that we're doing over there. So if you like games, if you like having a good time with people, consider coming on by. The link for that and for the Twitter feed are both in the show notes. All right. I think that's it, Spacers. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This has been an episode of The Outer World Show, a part of the Robots Radio Podcast Network. All music and sounds are property of Obsidian Entertainment and or private division, and no copyright infringement is intended. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review. We're on every major podcast streaming service, including anchor.fm slash outerworlds. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net. Hello. Hi. Do you like bad movies? Do you find yourself defending bad movies, saying things like, well, the soundtrack was okay, or the costumes were pretty fun? From the previous hosts of It's Not That Bad Podcast, we bring you Fresh Tomatoes, the movie podcast, from Simone LaRue and Chad Ekovitz. Every week, we review two movies that did not do well critically, but we say, hey, there are some nice things about them. Maybe Rotten Tomatoes was wrong. Maybe they're all fools, and you should watch these movies regardless. We'll also talk about scenes that could have saved it, and we'll often refer to Simone's cats because they're amazing and adorable, and we love them. (laughs) And at the end of each review, we will tell you whether we would watch this movie again or in what circumstances we would recommend you watch this movie. So join us on July 9th for the first drop of our main episode and then two days later for our drop of our minisodes. And on Robots Radio Podcast Network. Come see us on July 9th. We love you so much already. Bye. Bye.